John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 103.ac2741, certificate number 20229, the Batavia. You've been to Antarctica. Not recently, but yes. How did, and you went there via Chile. Yeah, that's the easiest way because, you know, Tierra del Fuego is so close to the Antarctic Peninsula. Yeah. It kind of reaches up there as if like a Lovecraftian tentacle trying to give South America a hug. Ooh, a hug, eh? Uh, I mean, that's what Lovecraft taught us, which is that the devil lives in Antarctica. The ancient space demons all live in Antarctica. And anytime a tentacle reaches for you, it's looking for a hug. Yeah, you just want to reach back. Yeah. That's what what, uh, a lot of uh, internet hentai content has taught me. When you were out on the open ocean in your, in your boat, your ship. Converted Russian icebreaker, I believe. Did you, uh, what was the experience? Did you, I mean, and this is true also of being on a cruise ship. Do, do you look, did you stare out at the ocean? Did you think about the ocean? Quite a bit because there's really, well, first of all, there's nothing else to look at. There's birds. Sometimes. And then when you get further away, there's no birds. No birds. And then there's just the horizon. There's like two colors of thing. Did, did it drive people crazy back in the day of age of sail? Just to have nothing to look at? Must have done. Well, and I think, you know, if the sky gets a certain color, there's no way to distinguish between the sky and the sea. And then you're just in a, right. a, a vertigo land. Well, yeah, when the, especially, you know, if the weather kicks up, we had some pretty uh, choppy seas getting through the Drake Passage between South America and Antarctica. The Drake Shakes, they call it. The Drake Shakes. And it really, you know, this is not one of those big cruise ships that can, that can baffle or gyroscopically counterbalance the waves. So we were, we were bobbing up and down pretty fast. And you really do just feel like it must have been, you know, on, a, on an old ship in those days, a wooden ship in those days. It must have just been days of of chaos like worse than trench warfare even because you know the very elements of themselves you know the components of your world the sky and the sea and the ship are just constantly in motion to the degree that you know death is on all sides yeah well the the um you know the the high latitudes by which we mean 
Jamaica, man. No, no, those are the low latitudes. That's where I get high. I know. It's a high time. No, what are the high latitudes? The high latitudes, they mean high in number. Oh, I see. Yeah. So it gets... Where does that start? Um, well... 54-40 or fight. 54-40 or fight. No, the, the 40s, I think, are start to be the high latitudes. Got it. So around, around where we are. Yeah, that's right. Where, where are we? Like 48? Where's yeah. Seattle? Yeah, 48, 47, whatever 47. it takes. <laughs> right. um, but in the north, the high latitudes, or the 40s at least, are where all the land is, right? The, it's, where the, it's where, well, we can see Russia from here, or almost from here. But also, when you say all the land, you mean Canada and Europe. Canada. The only two correct parts of the world. Well, all the, you know, the big, like, Asia, the big mm-hmm. Siberia. Um, whereas down in the forties below South America and Africa, it's really open country down there. There's not, uh, there, there aren't a ton of land masses below 40 degrees South. Is there any latitude at which, no, there's not. I was about to say, is there any latitude at which you can actually circumnavigate the earth and water there? And I think you can't because Australia gets in the way. No, it's Australia is higher than that. South America goes down further than Australia. It does. Um, yeah, there's a way you can go all the way around, right? I guess probably between Antarctica and South America. It's probably the exact latitude I was at. And, you know, all the way down there in the 60s, the 60 degree latitudes, there's nothing to stop the wind. It's In fact, just going back to your point about how different the northern and southern hemisphere are, they're pretty much exact opposites. Like everywhere that is land up here... If you were to drill a hole right through the center of the earth, you would come out in water down there. Yeah. You know, all the big land masses up here have a corresponding ocean down there. The Indian Ocean for North America, the or the Pacific Ocean for South Pacific for much of Eurasia. Um, they just have land where we have water and water where we have land. And it it was, I think even now, sixty degrees south is a is pretty crazy place to be on a boat. You get you get buffeted. If you're Robert Redford, you really get messed up. He never came back. I don't think he was that far down. Um, you're, but, I assume you're talking about the All Is Lost movie. Yeah. yeah. Did you enjoy that movie? I like it. But well, I was just talking to somebody who finds it so unnerving they uh, regret ever seeing any of it. Oh, because now they think about it all the time? Yeah. It's their Jaws. <laughs> I guess, except at least in Jaws they killed the shark. Well, here's one thing that they can do. Never go around the world by themselves on a small sailboat. I have uh, lived my life according to that teaching. Yeah. I am in my 48th consecutive year of not going around the world in a small sailboat. Alone. You would have to do it alone in order to reenact that, the terror of... I don't think I'd do it even with somebody else. Yeah. I I know, get, can you imagine? Who would you want to spend that much time with? For Mindy! Yeah, Mindy's lovely. Yeah. Um, what if you two were on a tiny sailboat exactly. around the world? I can't just get out and go to a movie, huh? I know. No, you cannot. Um, in the early days of the Age of Sail, uh, it makes sense if you were a European colonizer, let's say of a Portuguese or Dutch extraction. Well, nothing makes sense if you're a colonizer. I no. think we can all agree. Boo. But um, if you are if you are trying to go find a trade route to India, which was the big fashion of the time, naturally you would go from Portugal down the coast of Africa, and then up the other side of Africa. Right. No Suez Canal for you. No. 
you're going to go there sort of in between Africa and Madagascar. And then kind of once you're up there around the horn of Africa, you're, you feel confident enough that you can cut across. I'm going to hang it right. Cause I'm going to hit India if I, if I do this right. Well, but you're trying to hit India. Right. That's in what I'm saying. Case. Yeah. Right. So you, yeah, you cut across there. It was called the monsoon route because you could monsoon your way. It was, it was a route that was good one direction, but not very good the other direction because the weather was kind of all, and the currents were all in your favor one way. But Luckily, many of them died before the return trip, so it never came up. I don't know. Luckily, it depends on who you're rooting for. It is funny to imagine all these little Portuguese kids reading Trade Route to Asia magazine. Yeah. Because that's what everybody was yeah. into. Yeah. You guys hear about this new uh, Trade Route to Asia? Eventually, the Portuguese figured out a route that actually took them straight if you go straight from Portugal down, it's sort of just as easy to go to Brazil and then follow the winds across to the Cape of Good Hope. Rather, oh, I see. Yeah. And then, you know, and so there were, there were various, uh, there were various preferred routes. If today, if I was going from Western Europe to Africa, I would probably not go by way of South America. No, typically no. Maybe if I'm Robert Redford in a small boat. But now we have, we have motors and also the Suez Canal. Um, those, are the, the, those are the two great gifts of modernity. Yeah. Motors, motors and the Suez Canal. Guns, but, germs, steel. But then sometimes motors. motors block the Suez Canal. Oof. And then we just have, we, then we have neither. Talk about too soon. <laughs> You're still traumatized. That's your jaws. <laughs> uh, yeah. Supply chain, Ken. Supply chain. Supply chain problems. Are you not affected by supply chain? I am every damn day. I have a bed sitting in a port somewhere. Who knows? Yeah. Long Beach, Shanghai. Who knows? What did I do? I went somewhere the other day and they were out of, what was it? They were out of chocolate croissants or something. And I was like, supply chain? And the guy's like, I don't know. Uh, I yeah. guess. Supply chain. <laughs> okay. Basically what that means is like, if Rodrigo doesn't come in early enough to work, uh, yeah, supply, supply chain. chain. Oh, you yeah, know, Trader Joe's is out of those green, those green burritos. <laughs> supply chain. Probably supply chain. Supply chain. Come on. Um, so in the early 1600s, the Dutch or the, the Dutch. No. The Nederlanders. The Dutch. The Dutch discover that if you, the Cape of Good Hope is about 34 degrees latitude. Okay. If you sail down the coast of Africa, get to the Cape of Good Hope and go straight down six more degrees to, or 10 more degrees to the forties, the, the roaring forties. And latitude's the easy one to compute. Right. So all you need is a clear sky and a sextant. Exactly. You can get down there and all of a sudden you hit these winds that are headed east that will propel you so fast that if you are a good sailor, you can cut the travel time from the Nederlands to the Dutch East Indies, which are there just sort of east of India. Modern Indonesia. You can cut the travel time from 12 months to six months. Cut half your travel time. Wow. Are these the proverbial trade winds? Yes. And this route was pioneered by a Dutch captain by the name of Brewer or Brewer. Imagine the first guy. I mean, everybody else loves the trade winds, but the first guy is like, whoa, 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 whoa what's this? What the what? What's going on at this latitude? Zoom. 
I can't do a Dutch accent, so. What is the what thing about this accent? What is going on at this No, altitude? all of a sudden I am from Serbia. Uh, I used to have a great Dutch accent because I interacted with Dutch people all the time, but it's sort of like a Germanic accent, except they're way more superior. And taller. They're taller. And they're, and smugger. Do you think that's how they found winds that the Portuguese could not? They yeah. were just a little taller? Yeah, that's right. The, the Portuguese, Portuguese captain are, is like 5'8", 5'6". They're up, up high and they can feel the wind in their hair. <laughs> they're thinning hair. So this route um, was, you know, immediately made kind of the mandatory route for uh, for the Dutch East India Company ships because they were like, look. It's a pretty good route. Basically, they just found like a wormhole in it's a Star Trek. Mm-hmm. The problem was you had to be a really good sailor to, as you just suggested, to calculate your longitude. Right. Latitude is very easy to calculate. Longitude, extremely hard to calculate. And down there where there, there's no, there's no landmass to, to reference, if you didn't know what you were doing, you could go too far. You could get on that, you know, lose track of time and, um, and miss your turn. The problem with longitude, of course, will just to elaborate for the far future is that to know how east and west you are, the, the sunrise and sunset change as you move east and west. It's not at a constant time like it would be at a certain date, north and south. Right. So without an accurate clock, there's no way to know how far west or east you are. And clocks were not accurate at sea. Pendulums went, boing, boing, boing. They're blowing all around in those trade winds. There are not a ton of uh, islands in this region, but there are a couple. Um, what, how far east are we? Are we every now east, southeast of the Indian subcontinent and over so toward Malaysia? They're kind of right in the middle, um, right in the middle of the of the sub Indian Ocean, the lower okay low Indian Ocean, and it's they're equidistant between Madagascar, Australia, and India. Today, today they probably have NATO airstrips of some kind. Of. Yeah, exactly. And one of them is and called a bunch of cormorants. A- Amsterdam Island, and the other is called Saint Paul Island. Okay. Uh, and the Dutch East Indian captains were uh, the if they were good, they would steer close enough to these that that would indicate like now it's time to hook a left. And the only landmark in the whole Indian Ocean is exactly these puffins head left. And go straight up. And the problem was if you didn't do that uh, and you missed your turn, the next landmass you would hit were the massive coral reefs of Western Australia. They're some of the highest latitude coral reefs in the world, by which I mean lower down in Australia. If you can picture the scene, mm-hmm. higher means lower. Summer is in winter. It's insane. How do they do it? The toilets flush backwards. Christmas in in July. Uh, they call the uh, knives knives. Yes. No, that's they do not call it. knives knives. <laughs> I was trying to think of another thing that Australians got backwards, but I can't think of one. Oh, their politics. I mean, so I guess. many things. Uh, so it was... Yahoo Serious is funny. Is it? No. No. 
But they think, you know, he's a funny guy whose name is Sirius. That's just classic Southern Hemisphere inversion. That's not a reference that I get. Is that true? No. Who, who's young? Yeah. You remember young Einstein? No. Briefly popular uh, Australian comedian with one American movie in the early 80s. Kind of a post-Crocodile Dundee. Or sorry, late eighties, kind of a post crocodile Dundee thing. I missed him. Mm. I was, yeah, I was already. I don't know what was happening. I was already learning guitar by that point. I feel like people still know him because there's like at least two Simpsons jokes about him. So is that is that all it takes to get you into the canon? And you're on the Simpsons, so you will exist in the future. <gasps> That's true. Yeah, and That's I'm true. not, so I will not exist in the future. But you don't. You have to be famous enough to voice someone else on the Simpsons. That's real fame. If you play yourself on The Simpsons, that just means you're like yeah, you're, a corny guest star. Yeah, you're the you're a real housewife, or you're the bassist in something. Death Cab for Cutie. Yes, exactly. Yeah, or like you know, all time Jeopardy winner. Exactly. I don't think I will ever be any of those things. What happens to those unlucky ships that don't make the right left turn is they hit. The reefs, reefs. and it's like shipwreck central for ships from this era, from the, uh, the 17th century. A lot of these explorer ships were wrecked. And in fact, so many, the, the British decided they were going to try out this crazy Dutch route around the world. They went down there and the second ship that ever tried it wrecked on the reefs and as a result, the Royal Navy was like, nope, we're not doing the, we're not doing the Brower route. Some countries would be like one for two. That's pretty good. No. And they, for the next 20 years, they said, don't, don't go down there. Stick to the, stick to what we know. It's, Head the, around it's the graveyard of the Indian ocean. Yeah. Um, but the, you know, the Dutch always, I mean, risk takers, when you think about them now, right? You think the Dutch like a challenge. Yeah, they do. That's why they live where they do. And this was a time when the Dutch were a major colonial power. They were they had in, uh, taken Indonesia and all of its many riches and had established their capital there in a town called Batavia, which now is Jakarta. Mm-hmm. But it was called Batavia until after World War II. Wow. Uh, it was built on the ruins of an ancient city named Jakarta. And um, it was a Dutch territory from the 1600s all the way until the Japanese invaded Indonesia in the 1930s. The two great powers of our time, the Netherlands and Japan. Yeah. Fighting it out. Fighting it out in Batavia. What's crazy is, you know, you look at the maps of that region as I have done for centuries, literally centuries, because I've been alive, alive for 700 years. I've never revealed that before. It's crazy that you would just do it in an aside in this bit about uh, Dutch history. I'm assuming that people stopped listening to this episode back in the <laughs> young Einstein references. But, you know, Indonesia is is quite far west relative to Australia. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, to think that the Japanese made it all the way down there, God, it's, it's just crazy to me. Indonesia is, was the, you know, going back even further... I don't know why I need to go back hundreds of thousands of more years. Let's go all the way back. The site of the first seafaring peoples, quite probably Indonesia, because there's a series of kind of crossable straits that a bamboo raft can take. So the first hominids to take to the seas, it's believed, came down from mainland Asia through the various islands of Indonesia. And, you know, eventually, as we know, got all the way to Australia, became the, the ancestors of the Aboriginal Australians. I thought you were going to say San Francisco. 
They did not get to San Francisco. That's, see, that's, that's a longer hop. Mm. Um, but this is where we as a people first tried out boats. That's why they have all the little islands with their own little hominids over there, the hobbits and whatnot. Well, at this point in time, it was uh, the Dutch that were trying to, you know, the Portuguese had gotten to India sort of before anyone else. Tagama. And, um, you know, we're really taking that spice trade and, and um, sort of trying to monopolize that. They were spicing it that up. That market, they were. The Dutch got to Indonesia and decided that this was where they were going to plant their, their flag of exploitation. But they were traders, right? That's the, that's the whole Dutch way. They're not... Um, they just wanted tulips. They just want to... They, they want to give you something and then choose. get something back, right? They want to take you some delicate teacups and take... With, uh, with views of Delft on them. Yeah, and then they, and, and in return get... Your whole royal family. <laughs> yeah, or uh, who knows what. Uh, frankincense and myrrh. No, I have, you know, I have no, no sense of the economy. You don't know what the beauties of Indonesia are? Let's say it's probably some teak and saris. some ivory. Yeah, there you think you go. saris? Saris. Yeah, probably some sitars. Yeah, sitars. No, they have. Uh, what do they have there? Gamelan music. They have um, uh, drums. Drums played with sticks. Yeah, like xylophone things. Yeah, yeah. It must be. It must be teak. I don't. I don't. Don't think they imported a lot of elephants. They did not travel well. Well, you don't import the whole elephant. Oh right. You leave the elephant rotting in the jungle, and you take ivories because you're an evil colonizer. Yes, yes, yes. I understand. Yes. Although I do have a pair of elephant skin cowboy boots. Well, you probably shouldn't. It's too late now. Well, don't tell Esso it. They were already made. They were made a long time ago. I, just, I see. I just happened upon It's them. actually better for the environment to buy an existing pair of elephant skin boots than it is to buy a new pair of Nagahide boots. Well, I don't know about that, but it well, definitely no, it cuts down on the, on the more recent elephant skin boots. Reduce, reuse, recycle. No, even the plastic boots will put something in the environment. You're absolutely right. It's like driving you're, you're, my, my 79 Suburban. It's better than any Prius. You're kind of a hero to, to wear a fur. Thank you. As long as it's, you know, bought in the 60s or earlier. That's a major theme of this show, that I am a hero. <laughs> but speaking of heroes. At this point, uh, the uh, the Dutch are sending, you know, they're, they're building this East Indies trade route. And um, in 1629, they send their flagship Dutch East India Company flagship, uh, a ship called the Batavia. It's a little confusing. Are they sending it to Batavia? They are sending it to Batavia. That's a little weird. It's like the USS San Francisco going to San Francisco. Which must happen. It does. Does the it USS does. Enterprise ever go to Enterprise, Alabama? It does No, because it's no. landlocked. Right. But I guess the, the Starship could go there. Starship Enterprise goes to, I mean, I imagine they would name a planet the Enterprise. Probably not. Planet Enterprise. Be confusing. Here we are on Planet Enterprise, Captain. That's a little weird. They send uh, they send the Batavia to Batavia, loaded with guilders, loaded with treasure. Yeah. In order to affect the uh, the engine of trade, they're going to take all this this. Gold and silver, and they're going to. It's a big enough of a colony that it needs it needs cash money. It does, and there and the and the goal being that um, that they're going to open up this what what is going to be now a trans oceanic global trade network, and they 
They sent it under the command of a captain named Francisco Pelsert. And the Dutch East India Company um, put traders or merchants in charge of their ships. So the Is that a good idea? The ranking system was based on like how big a merchant you were. So is he the captain? Or is he just the CEO telling the captain what to do? Yeah, it's more it's more like the admiral who the ship is actually steered by the skipper. In this case, a man by the name of Arian Jacobs, who's you know a seafaring man. I think that I think uh, Pelsert was also like a, a seaman of a kind. I mean, they weren't they were merchants, we're but all also seamen of a kind. If yeah, you go back far enough, they were all sailors, but they're but they're known by the by their merchant title. Is this like a James Cameron's Titanic scenario where the business guy is going to be telling the actual seafaring guy to go too fast? No, it was strange. Pelser, uh, although in command of the ship, kind of uh, stayed in his cabin. That's fine. For a lot of the voyage. Maybe, maybe he was seasick. Part of the problem was that Pelser and Jacobs already knew each other and had had a... A negative encounter. Ooh. They'd gotten into a fight. Negative encounters, some 90s straight-to-video movie. Yeah, negative encounter, where where somebody crosses their legs in a su- suggestive way. William Hurt, Sharon Stone, negative encounters. This negative encounter was just one where they exchanged insults, or, or Pelsart uh, used his authority to to humiliate Jacobs in a bar in some, some uh, colonial territory mm. jacobs remembered it they didn't like each other just, somehow just tell me who to root for here john yeah, well boy it's gonna be it's tough to pick a hero out of this story i think the hero is me right we've established that but by your standard of heroism neither lives up no there are no there well there i mean there are a couple of people that get that get uh 10 stars at when all this shakes out Meh. neither jacobs nor pelsert are in that list of people okay but at the at, at the time jacobs is um is going to be kind of well he's handling the 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 sailing and pelsert stays in his cabin i can only imagine uh, you, you try to picture like what it would be like to be stuck on a ship with somebody that was your commander who had humiliated you in the past and it's a it's a big boat there are 336 passengers, I think. Oh, wow. Um, a whole, or no, I'm sorry, 30, 332 passengers. Uh, merchants, soldiers, uh, there are women on board. Crew, but some people just heading for the colonies. Yeah, yeah, there's a Begin lot. Begin a new life. Um, yeah, beginning a new life and start, you know, I mean, I, at this point, um, Batavia is a bustling little trade hub. There's a woman named Lucretia Jans who uh, who's on her way sailing to to uh, rendezvous with her husband in Batavia, who's there already on a secret mission. They're fed up with their quaint Dutch life. They've seen enough windmills. They want they want adventure. They want to see a, a, a hill that's taller than three feet up. And next in charge after these two after Pelsert and Jacobs, is uh, a junior merchant by the name of Hieronymus Cornelis. Okay. And Hieronymus is a, um, 
is a person on board the ship who's going to the East Indies to kind of escape some shame back in the Netherlands. Like criminal shame or not criminal shame. Somebody saw his bottom or social shame. He was raised um as a um you know this is a time of great upheaval in the Netherlands in terms of the the various factions of Protestantism mm. that were all sort of arguing with each other about predestination. Um, and he was a member of a sect, a kind of Mennonite sect of like quasi Rosicrucians who believed in all kinds of Mennonite metaphysicism. He had to leave the continent because he had the wrong ideas about predestination. Although that Tough happened room. to a lot of people, there was an additional scandal. He was, uh, Cornelis was a, uh, was a pharmacist by trade, but he and his wife had had a son and the son at three months old died of syphilis. Mm. And they employed a wet nurse. Oh, I was trying to figure out if you could, if syphilis can cross the placental barrier, but no, it's, it's syphilitic milk. Well, that is what Cornelis claimed. Uh, in, because for your child to die of syphilis was a huge social black mark. Because babies could get born with syphilis. Yeah. Well, syphilis, if the, you know. If the mom is syphilitic or. Syphilis ru- running rampant um, and definitely like an indicator of a moral failing. And so the implication being that if Cornelis or his wife had syphilis, they could not be members of polite society. It's true. I've learned congenital syphilis is a thing. So he tried to blame it on the wet nurse, but I don't think anybody bought it. And mm. he was shamed out of his community, headed so, it to... It seems like it wasn't the predestination so much as it was the syphilis. Well, except at the time also, this uh, he was a member, kind of almost born into a Mennonite sort of sect that already put him under suspicion. But uh, if you are familiar with the painter, Johannes Vanderbeek. Let's pretend I am, but maybe give me the highlights. Johannes. Of Vanderbeekian uh, uh, genre painting. Yeah, his, uh, he's a, like a, a lauded painter of the, the Dutch, you know, the early Dutch 17th century school, which was you know, kind of where painting flourished after it, it came from the, you know, the early Renaissance. Sure. All the big names up there. They were all up there. Vermeer and Steen. Kicking out the jams. Um, but Vanderbeek was also a heretic, a, uh, a, a proselytizer of a kind of wackadoodle version of Dutch Protestantism so much so that he was tried for heresy and a, lo- a lot of his paintings were destroyed mm. as heretical so there are very few vanderbeeks left and those are considered you know among the great paintings of of the time not being american he couldn't go to upstate new york and start a sex cult nope nope although he got nipped in the bud he did so the combination of it's not clear whether uh whether Pelsart actually was a disciple of Vanderbeek, but they were 
closely enough allied. He was tarred with the Vanderbeekian brush. He left. He he boarded uh, the the Batavia within a week of Vanderbeek being accused or being tried for heresy. Mm. So there's some circumstantial connection. He might have been fleeing future prosecution. He might have been fleeing a uh, uh, prosecution or persecution. Definitely, he lost a lot uh, in the syphilitic episode mm. uh, in terms of his future earning power, right? He, was, he, he lost all of his connections and he lost a lot of He his could have withstood one or the other. Right. If you're going to be getting a venereal disease, maybe stay away from unconventional religion. Or you can do what I do. If your religious beliefs are, are unconventional, just mm-hmm. try not to get syphilis. And so the, far? The Ken Jennings way. So far, no oh, syphilis. 100% am I right? syphilis free over here on, I mean, this, on this side of the table. You keep, uh, you keep COVID tests lying around, but do you keep syphilis tests lying around? I don't around? even know what syphilis tests are. Where does the swab go? I'm not sure either. Mm. You must pee on a strip. Probably. Anyway, the Batavia is loaded with trade gold and other precious items to take to Indonesia and, and make, a, make a hot time, right? Friday night down there. Um, but once on board, once the ship is at sea and, uh, and Francisco Pelsert retreats to his cabin where he mostly stays, Cornelis starts to agitate. He becomes friends with Jacobs, the the skipper, and starts to fill Jacobs's head with all kinds of schemes. Hmm. This the the gist of the schemes being this trip is loaded or this ship is loaded with silver and gold and gems. And if we contrive some circumstances, whoa, we can uh, take off and start a new kingdom somewhere. There's, it's still enough. The world is still enough of a wild untamed frontier from the perspective of these guys that, um, they need some justification for a mutiny and having established one, they then can take off. You said on Tuesday we were going to have piracy and syphilis. That's right. And boy have you delivered. Here we are. 30 minutes in and we've got piracy and syphilis. But wait, there's more. Um, And so in looking for a provocation, they they decide that they are going to assault Lucretia Jans who is you know, a a free woman on board the ship on, on the way to meet her husband. They're going to sexually assault her. Wow. But not, but, and in the confusion, when Pelsart comes out of his cabin and looks for a culprit and starts to what they assume will be, you know, uh, put dr- draconian punishments in place. Lay down the law, flog somebody. This will be the thing that allows them to incite the crew into a mutiny. He's trying to stop us raping people. Get him. Exactly. I don't like this plan at all. No, it's a bad plan. And in fact, what happens is uh, Lucretia is able to identify the culprits, thereby making it very clear who they are. And so their punishment is swift and isolated. And it is not... The crew's on board. Yeah, it's not sufficient to... You know, this is kind of like the, uh, the Proud Boys trying to start a race war 
by, you know, whatever, knocking over some some bottles of Fago in a in a bodega somewhere, and everybody's like, "No, yeah, it was those guys." Anyway, so this um, this is not this is not enough justification to start a mutiny. But Pelsart again sort of relinquishes control to Jacobs, who was not implicated. You know, um, Jacobs and Cornelis are both really good at getting other people to do their. Getting, you know, get, getting. So Cornel- Cornelis took the fall, but not Jacobs, or they both got away? They both got away. They okay. just, they just, incited they had underlings. This, yeah. They, they, to whatever degree they are uh, charismatic enough or, or have enough authority that they, uh, that they got somebody else to, to commit the crime. And mm. those sailors are the ones prosecuted. The other two go, go free. But Pelsert's not minding the store. And the suspicion is now, of course, all of these stories come. Uh, Vic, the history is written by the survivors. And so all we have are the accounts of the people who live to tell the story. Spoilers. Um, but the suspicion is that Jacobs being a, a sophisticated captain intentionally steered off course once they were down in the roaring forties Missed the turn at uh, New Amsterdam. Because he thinks this is his ticket to keeping the gold and yeah. starting a new life in the off-world colonies? Yeah, they're going to now steer away from Dutch East Indies and come up along. I mean, everyone knows Australia is there, although nobody yet has, no European has yet landed on Australia and visited it. Interesting that they've all mapped the coast and nobody's like, we'll settle this. Well, you know, cause they come, the Portuguese came, came around and mapped the West coast, yeah. but, but not uh, till Captain Cook does the rest of it get mapped. Yeah. And the, and what they found there were these, these killer reefs 40 miles offshore. And then when you get past the reefs and you look at Western Australia, at least in the North, it's not like, Hey, Awesome. You've really offended our future audience. The all lives in Western Australia. The only Perth is the capital of the world federation. Now the only place to escape the, the neutron clouds. We're not, we're not talking about the area around Perth. We're talking North of Perth where there's to this day, no water, very little. Yeah. Um, so there wasn't a ton of incitement to like, Hey, come settle here. Anyway, they, uh, they sail off course, they arrive there at the, uh, in Western Australia and immediately do what, uh, do what was the the fashion of the time. And they crash into the reef, the reef at the time known as the Houtman Albrojos, which is a Portuguese term meaning stay away from these reefs. They must've missed that issue. Says Houtman. Trade route to Asia magazine. Yeah. There was probably a whole cover package on not hitting the reef. There's this whole story as a result of the Houtman uh, Alberhos being called that, use, using a Portuguese term. Mm-hmm. There was later on, a couple of centuries later, uh, a Portuguese claim to have discovered Australia, Houtman being uh, a Dutch sailor. But the. Why was the name Portuguese then? Because the Portuguese ha- had established so much of the lexicon of sailing. Oh, interesting. That Houtman had learned the term. It was a it was a common, um, a common Portuguese word that had become part of the the whole language of sailors. The same way lots of our cooking terms are, are French. French, yeah, exactly. Or our criminal terms are Australian. 
Exactly. So in June of 1629, the Batavia crashes into the reef uh, and 40 people drown right out of the gate. But the remainder make their way to uh, these uninhabited atolls that are covered with birds. They don't get to mainland Australia, but there's these coral reefs off of which they crashed. Mainland Australia is still, you know, tens and tens of kilometers Mm -hmm. away. They can't see it. And on the, on this like craggy rock, there's no fresh water. Uh, and there's very little food. They, they try and salvage as much from the ship as they can. The ship is carrying 12 treasure chests. Ooh. 12 treasure chests that have, um, treasure. They, they do. They have treasure. They have treasure untold hundreds of, no, it's told it's, it's, un, it's untold still. You're about to tell it I'm at the moment. It's treasure untold, but maybe we should just leave it that way. Nope. Here we go. Well, there's some interesting treasure in addition to what you would normally, what, what you think of as, tw- as treasure. There are 20, 250,000 guilders. Probably a lot. There are 60,000 guilders worth of jewels. Mm. And there's a, a Roman cameo. <laughs> a, um, Does this just belong to a passenger? Put it in the safe? A cameo called the Gemma Constantiana, mm-hmm. which was commissioned by the Roman Senate in about 300 AD, or Common Era, as we say now. Um, to commemorate Constantine's victory against Maxentius. Wow. And it was a it was a very famous cameo, and still is, one of the largest cameos of its time, which is still not very large. Um, it's just a carving of Constantine in a chariot with his wife and his mom and his son. Um, with the chariot is being pulled by centaurs who are crushing his enemies. And the goddess wow. Victoria is... It's much a bigger cameo than I imagined. Yeah, there's I a thought lot it was going to be a bust of Constantine, and now it's, you keep zooming out. And there's a bunch of centaurs. Yeah. There's and some monkeys. So this cameo was a big deal in its time, and somehow found its way to Constantinople, uh, where, during the Fourth Crusade, touching back to some earlier Omnibai, mm-hmm. um, it was taken from the taken from Constantinople and taken to Europe. It changed hands several times at one point owned by Peter Paul Rubens. Wow. And then fell into the hands of some very rich Dutch traders who sold it to the Dutch East India company with the idea that they would take it to the Mughal empire and sell it to the Mughal emperor Jahangir. Why would why would he want it? Because he was renowned uh, in the time as an esthete and an art appreciator. Big big Constantine head. And that, that's very interesting that they've got um, that in Western Europe there is this kind of uh, non-white potentate who is known to be a. Uh, uh, an art lover and a and a potential customer for yeah. these high ticket items. So this is the Dutch way, right? So they're not they're they're thinking, oh, who's going to buy the, who's going to pay top dollar for this? Probably he's got tons and tons of jewels and 
fantastic. I mean, you know, diamonds and rubies. It's the beginning of our modern trope of, a, oh, there's a wealthy Chinese collector who yeah, wants that or exactly. whatever. The, the, somebody in Japan wants to pay half a million dollars for Eric Clapton's for a, yeah, pants. Or a Van Gogh or whatever. <laughs> so among the treasure in these 12 treasure, treasure chests is the Gemma Constantiniana, um, which is... Uh, priceless. Which is priceless and has been and has already been on a 1,500-year uh, journey around the world. Anyway, so the, the castaways immediately realize, well, we're not going to survive here. And so Pelsert suddenly comes alive, takes command. I love that album. Pelsert comes alive. <coughs> we can leave that cough in because that's a cough of pleasure. Um, Pelsert comes alive and puts together, you know, a, a, a crew of hardy sailors who are going to sail in a 30 foot long boat to Australia to find water and food and then come back and rescue the remaining passengers. Yeah. There's gotta be nothing to eat or drink there where they are. They're in bad shape. Pelser takes Jacobs with him. Jacobs, the, his, uh, Pelser leads the expedition himself. Pelsert and Jacobs and a, and a crew of uh, soldiers and so forth. These two have a history. Take remember. the boat. And I think he probably takes Jacobs because Jacobs is actually a pilot and is going to, you know, help steer or whatever, navigate. And they head off to, to find fresh water in Western Australia. They get to Western Australia and find some water, but it's not good enough. They move up and up the coast. They don't like the water here. They don't like the water there. And eventually Pelsert says, let's just sail across the sea to Batavia where we'll get resupplied. We'll get a full ship that we can take, take back to save our compatriots. Now they would have left them there knowing there was no food or water. It seems like this should have been a very short mission. Um, to sail to the coast and then head immediately back. I mean, if nothing else, there's some urgency to it. The you've left the majority of your civilians behind in need of food and water. Yeah. But in this case, um, he seems to have felt like, well, they'll be fine. In fact, they were not fine. Oh, um, with the absence of those two, Cornelis is now the ranking member of the party and he's, Ranking only in the sense that he's the, he's the head merchant mm -hmm. and Cornelis immediately starts to, uh, order the, um, to, to reorder the situation. He sequesters all the weapons and gets a, gets the soldiers, you know, the, the main actual like. Dutch soldiers together into a group and sends them out in another sort of long boat that was salvaged, mm -hmm. sends them to a nearby Island, one that's only six miles away looking for water and food. Is he consolidating power? Is he becoming a little tin pot dictator on this atoll? That's what's happening. Um, the, uh, the 
The person in charge of the sort of soldier's expedition is named Weeby Hayes. And Weeby takes the... Uh, Weeby Hayes is like a pretty cool name. It is kind of a it's cool It's like a black exploitation character yeah, or something. Weeby Hayes. Yeah, well, go ask Weeby Hayes. He always knows what's up on the street. Hey, hey Weeby, tell me the score, says Starsky. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so they head out looking for food and water. And in the meantime, Cornelis starts to cull. Oh. He figures there's not enough food and water to last for everyone. Wait, he just starts literally killing people? So he starts literally killing people. Now, he does does not ever personally kill anyone, but he incites his followers who have, you know, he spent the whole voyage kind of trying to convince um, to undermine the captain and convince people Little to mutineers. engage in, in seditious behavior. Mm-hmm. He now convinces them that the other uh, shipwrecked folks are zombies. Well, they definitely present a, a, a survival challenge. Yeah. They are a threat to their survival. Hey, the only way we can get out of this is to kill 30 of them. Why don't you guys? Exactly. Uh, there's not enough do. food. There's not enough water. And so they start rounding people up. And killing them various ways. Wow. Just, um, they got guns, I guess. Well, they do, but they mostly kill them by uh, hacking them to pieces, poisoning them, drowning them. Do you think the threads of civilization are just always so thin? Or is it something about the life and death scenario of where they are? Or the fact that they've been on the high seas for months anyway, and there's some sense that here the law doesn't touch us? I mean, I don't think it would take me, uh, I think it would take me longer than a week before I started murdering my fellow passengers on any cruise, even a Disney cruise. Well, there is, you know, you, we have this problem a lot in modern times. How do we psychoanalyze people from the past? Yeah. How do we go back and know what Woody Allen was thinking? It's very hard to apply our 21st century psychology texts all the way back to Woody Allen, all the way back to 1978 in his, in his uh, time. That was the high school girls were, uh, yeah, we're not off limits. No, I mean, they're in every Aerosmith song, but there is a lot of suspicion that Cornelis was suffering from a syphilitic mania. Mm. That one of the things that, uh, that a syphilitic infection untreated does. It's true. Is dry. Oh, do you know I, from, I've heard. from firsthand experience? Obviously not. It's the main thing. I've said it multiple times on this episode. I'm famous for not having syphilis. Yes. Sometimes it appears under my name when I'm on TV. Ken Jennings. Does not, has never had syphilis. No syphilis. Well, syphilis does uh, get inside your, your uh, brain and it away. makes you potentially go uh, bonkers. And there's a sense that Cornelis certainly is a psychopath, but some of it is is consistent with it's compatible with syphilis. Should we make a new thing? We need we need a sign that goes over. And we need side. a not compatible with syphilis one for his wet nurse, right? Who is now we don't know if she ever had syphilis. Who is now kind of uh, it seems, exonerated? It seems maybe she did not. Um, he in the course of the this first. Uh, this first episode murders 110 people. Oof. And, 
It's well over half of who's well. I don't know. Three hundred thirty on board. So forty drowned in the initial and someone someone off in various expeditions. But it yeah. might be half of who's left. Yeah. Right. Um, and then he keeps a certain number of the women alive and uh, as sex slaves. Cornelis. So Cornelis is now fully in his head about founding a new kingdom with him as the as the king head, the godhead. And he estimates that really the kingdom, you know, to begin the kingdom, they need to reduce the the number of dependents down to, you know, a manageable number, uh, a group of people, maybe, you know, 70, 80 people. And he's got all these henchmen that he's really convinced. They're convinced by the plan. And so they're doing all the dirty work. Again, Cornelis does not... They've been promised gold and sex slaves. Yeah. He doesn't he doesn't kill himself anyone. He's a conniving figure. He is. He's pretty bad. He's he's bad in this story. Well, Weeby Hayes gets to this island six miles away. And he's been instructed by Cornelis, if he gets there uh, and finds food and water, to send a smoke signal. Because it's only six miles away. Well, Cornelis figures there's no food or water there and he sends Weeby and his crew with no supplies he's just trying to get rid of these guys yeah. figures they're going to maroon themselves over there and die of starvation not his problem but in fact Weeby and his boys find both food and water yeah maybe they, some breadfruit they land on what's known now as west wallaby island but they discover they can wade. That's a fake place name from a Finding Nemo movie. They can wade over to East Wallaby Island, where they find water and breadfruit. Wallabies. Oh, okay, that makes more sense. The island is covered with wallabies. Well, briefly, it is. It won't be for long. And apparently, a wallaby, which is a small kangaroo type creature, them's good eating. If you're hungry enough, you'll eat wallaby. And so. We be like stuffed on wallaby and and delicious fresh water sends the smoke signal over to to Cornelis. Look, it's the wallaby signal. And commissioner, people on the island trying to escape the murderous rampage swim 6 or, miles you said, right? Or or, or take rafts cling or, to barrels. Yeah, some other way. And enough people make it to Wallaby Island that they alert Weeby that Cornelis has gone b- bananas. Mm-hmm. Weeby then builds a stone fort on Wallaby Island to repel what he imagines is going to be an invasion, an attack from Cornelis. From syphilitic Cornelis. This stone fort is the first um, European building. The first European structure built in Australia. Wow. He is correct. Cornelis does attack and is repulsed. By the fort. By the fort. Fort's one for one. Uh, This is 150 years before James T. Cook arrives in Australia. So... I guess to be fair, they're not on mainland Australia, right? No, but it's now this this area now, the Wallaby Islands and and all of the rest of the uh atolls are considered like one of the primary bird 
mm-hmm. habitats and migration routes. The whole area just, in fact, not very long ago was declared a national park. Um, tourist uh, visits are, are tightly managed and regulated. You, know, you can't just, yeah, you can't just go there in your own little motorboat. Um, Hayes is in the midst of repelling a second invasion when he captures Cornelis and while still under attack by Cornelis's troops, guess who arrives? It's Pelsert. Back who, from the who, unsuccessful trip to the mainland? Yeah, or? this is now five months later. Um, Pelsert arrives in a rescue ship called the Sardom, which he's, he's uh, acquired in Batavia. Oh, he got all the way to Batavia. He made it to Batavia. Uh, healed up. That's far. It's very far. I guess he must have found a nearer port and then from thence made it to Batavia. When he got to Batavia, he actually um, he actually had Jacobs arrested, <laughs> but not for um, not for the, the conspiracy, which he does. He still doesn't suspect Jacobs of this crime. He was in his cabin. What did he arrest him for? He arrested him for uh, negligence, for for wrecking the ship. I see. For bad seamanship. And um, the boatswain was arrested too. So two of his crew that sailed with him all the way to the to Batavia. He delivers them. He's like, these guys yeah. suck. Put them in irons. That's right. And then he- and Mr. He's, Christian. The, uh, the Dutch East India Company gives him this new ship and they sail- they arrive just in the nick of time to uh, to save Hayes, Weeby Hayes. As the ship arrives, uh, members of Hayes's party and members of Cornelius's party race to Hayes's ship. It was him. It was him. Exactly to try and tell the story. It's like when mom and dad come home and the the babysitting mom, is gone down. Yeah, the, she the, started the, it. The Western wet nurse gave me syphilis. No, the wet nurse gave me syphilis. Uh, Hayes, Hayes's people get there first, tell the story and, uh, Pelsert arrests Cornelis, tortures him. Couldn't happen to a nicer guy. Cuts off his hands. Wow. Is this just Dutch sea law? This is just how it goes. Eh, it's just cut off his hands. And he, uh, and then hangs him, but not after Cornelis confesses the whole scheme I think uh, implicates oh, he Jacobs. Do, he does hear about the the mutiny en route. Okay. Um, how is this not a movie? I guess I say that a lot on this show, but well, how is this not a movie? Well, I it's probably we'll it's, probably it's get letters. Dark. It's seven different movies and fifteen different true crime podcasts. But you There's know, probably you know, an, an eighteen hour Dutch miniseries about this from the eighties. Yeah, exactly. Um. They they go and rescue the the remaining people on the island. 122 people survived of the 332 people that embarked. Uh, they take the the rest of the mutineers that they don't that they don't chop off their hands and bury them in the uh, on on a rocky atoll. They take them back to Batavia. Um, five of them are hanged. Uh, the rest are flogged or keel hauled or dropped from the yardarm 
keel hold is to drag someone behind the ship? No? No, under the keel of the ship. So you start on one side, you go under the keel and come up on the other side. Better be good at holding your breath. Do you just do it once? I bet back and forth. I mean, I've never been keel-hauled. In the same way you don't have syphilis, I've never been keel-hauled. <laughs> John Roderick, local man, never been keel-hauled. Um, the, uh, the, the second in command of Cornelis was a guy named Jacob Peters, and he was broken on the wheel. Ugh. The worst of all the ways to be broken at the time. Well, also, of all, the worst of all things that could happen to you on a wheel would be to hmm. be broken on it. I mean, what, what, where, how do you come back from that? Right. Well, you know, you, you film Jeopardy right next to Wheel of Fortune. You tell me. Nobody's ever lashed to it, though, in, to my knowledge. Do you know that for sure? Yeah. After, after hours, Pat Sajak just starts throwing knives at the wheel while somebody <laughs> rotates. Um, Pelsart is not really exonerated by the, uh, by the, the court in Batavia. It's generally recognized that he did a bad job of running this whole operation. So even after he has all these people disciplined, then he gets it from the, the he does, king, what, the queen? What happens is the uh, the court in Batavia strips him of his, his assets. Within a year, he too has died. Um, but now for the rest of the story. Finally. This did not have enough incident for me. Two of the mutineers who were considered n- not instigators, but just sort of followers. Mm-hmm. A man by the name of Walter Luz, or Wouter Luz, for our Dutch listeners, and a cabin boy by the name of Jan Pelgrim Dubai, are both on the way home, taken to Western Australia, and kicked off the ship. Why? Just for their mutiny? Yeah. Like, w- you're not worth... Taken all the way back to try. But weirdly, they did take them all the way from Indonesia back to Australia. Well, no, no. This was before. This was leaving oh, uh, Wallaby Island. Got it. They just are left behind yeah. on Wallaby Island. They, no, not on Wallaby. They take them actually to the mainland of Western Australia oh. and kick them off the boat. And I don't know whether they went to the mainland to um, to get water and supplies. I'm sure they stocked up on Wallaby, delicious fresh Wallaby. Man, once you got a taste for a Wallaby. But they kicked these two ding-dongs off the boat, uh, giving them the distinction of being the first two European inhabitants of Australia. I assume they didn't have children, the two of them. No. And they were, crucially, never heard from again. <laughs> they, like, they literally could have lasted like a day and then one of the many poisonous spiders or snakes of Australia made off with them. Yeah, it's possible. Sharks. It's possible that uh, that they lived to a ripe old age, living on wallabies and and um, and what, river water. What would you rather imagine? I mean, they were kind of low level participants in the mutiny, but there was a lot going on on the Batavia. Like, do we do we think they should have a happy ending? They fall in love. They just eat breadfruit for the rest of their days in a little cabana by the beach. Imagine they did fall in love. I don't think there's a ton of lumber there to like build a log house or anything. Let's hear it for these two Australian queer icons. Unfortunately, Lucretia. Jans was also prosecuted. Lucretia, who was... Uh, All she did was uh, identify her attackers. No, then she became the... When, when the women were put into sex slavery, she became Cornelius's slave. He reserved 
Lucretia as his personal sex slave. She it was, was prosecuted. her fault. Well, tell that to the the, tell that to the the Dutch court in Batavia in 1630. I feel like I'm maybe a little bit of a better feminist than the Dutch court of Batavia in 1630. They charged her with provocation. Oh, see. And backhandedness. Is backhandedness really a naval crime? At the, at the time. <laughs> That's five to ten years for backhandedness. Ultimately, they acquitted her, but her case was cited by the Dutch East India Company when they uh, applied a new law, which was there should be very few female passengers on board Dutch East India ships because they are too seductive. Well, I mean, it's easy to laugh at that, but uh, similar arguments have made in our lifetimes about how women would be a distraction in the locker room or in the barracks or any number of places. And when something goes wrong, well, what was well, what was she wearing? Was she flirting with him? Or That's, right. That's why you can't have uh, uh, queers in the military either, because they're going to, uh, I don't know, make it very hard to shoot. That was the serious argument before, yeah. and at the time of don't ask, don't tell. Yeah. What, do you, what happens if you fall in love with your foxhole mate? You're not going to. Want them to get shot, which is what you would want if you had a straight foxhole mate. Whereas today we would be like, oh, what a sweet story if somebody mm-hmm. fell in love with their foxhole mate and didn't get shot. Like yeah. that that would actually be the happy ending of the war movie today. That's Walter Luz and Ca- Cabin Boy Jan Pelgrim Dubai. That's right. That's their happy ending. But I feel bad for Lucretia. Lucrezia, what was her name? Lucretia. Yeah. Um, the Gemma Constantini- Constantiana, uh, unfortunately, the Mughal emperor... Uh, Jahangir had died two years prior, and the <laughs> no, new, the word had not gotten back. No, the new Shah that took over didn't care about art at all. I hate Byzantine art. I'm, I got to put all this stuff on Craigslist. Why does he have all this? And so this crazy, uh, this crazy piece of art circulated around India and Sumatra. And so, Persia. So the treasure did survive. This wasn't some story of of. Uh... Oh well, that was the thing. When Pelsart got there, he was instructed by the Dutch East India Company when he made it back to to uh, the shipwreck to bury the treasure. No, oh, he, they, I was excited for a map. They said, uh, "Yeah, sure, rescue whoever is left, but get those twelve crates of treasure." Yeah, and, and, he, and then if there's room, get the get the people. Get the people. He managed to get ten crates of treasure back on the boat. One of them was lo- was lodged under a sunken cannon. Hmm. And one of them was already broken into. and So there was still treasure to be found. In the Batavia wreck. In the Batavia wreck until recently. Uh, and it's now like a great scuba diving location because the Batavia is, it was discovered um, in recent times and is still like. But the but the treasure was found and it was a, it was a National geographic kind of a thing. Yeah. Well, just the, the remaining like couple of crates. Right. Yeah. But eventually, uh, the Gemin Constantiana made its way back to the Netherlands and you can, you can find it even now in the Rijksmuseum. Oh, I bet I've seen it. Yeah. It's there and you wouldn't have known. You wouldn't have known the terrible all the history hands that have been on it. and syphilis and sex slavery and military court martials that led to it being there. If that cameo could talk. And that concludes the Batavia, entry 103.ac2741, certificate number 20229 in the omnibus. Uh, Futurelings, in our day, John and I were uh, 
on social media. Speaking of grubby things, at Omnibus Project, at Ken Jennings, and or at John Roderick. Uh, you could email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com or send us physical items. I'm trying to figure out what's going on here. We got something from a listener named Stuart who made his own envelope out of a USGS quadrangle map. Oh, I love it. Which is great. Addressed to Messrs. Jennings and Roderick. Where is this? this is, where is Franklin D. Roosevelt National Recreation Area? Oh, this is this is Grand Coulee, huh? Is that the lake formed by Grand Coulee Dam? That would be cool. It appears to be somewhere on the Columbia. I was planning to go to Grand Coulee this weekend. I've still never been. Are they still doing the laser show or did that end earlier in the season? Oh, I don't know. I'm not even sure I know about the laser show. Don't they shoot lasers at the dam or is this just a dream I had? Maybe they do. It's a big dam. I think they project things onto the dam. It's a dam laser show. Inside this very cool envelope is a letter from TC KTC Clipper. No, it's to him in Minneapolis, but it's got... Um, it's got... Antarctic postmarked stamps. Uh-huh. The stamps are all uh, Australian explorers, but it's got a 1989 South Pole postmark. What is going on here? And is there's Pelsert a... on the list of Dutch explorers. <laughs> there's a, these are all American explorers. Looks like oh. Bird, Wilkes, Ellsworth, and Palmer. There's a stamp calling that's, Stuart that's Clipper the, the Art... law firm that's representing me in my recent case. <laughs> Stuart Clipper is called the the artist on the ice in this 1989 stamp. He has enclosed a copy of the Antarctic Treaty. Uh, whenever another of your oh, this must have been what happened on the omnibus. Whenever whenever another of your correspondents purports that his or her nation has a claim to territory in Antarctica, no. I think we were discussing how many do. Please refer to this, and he has sent us a copy of the various articles of the Antarctic Treaty which would prevent that by international law. Oh, it's a picture of his art. This postcard is a photograph of a painting of Elvis he has done, possibly on velvet. Oh. Uh, at the South Pole in 1992. I don't know if I should open this envelope, which is addressed to him in Minneapolis, but it appears to have, perhaps it will have the key to the whole mystery, John. Okay. I hope this isn't some priceless historical cameo that I'm not supposed to open because it's not addressed to me. The outer envelope's addressed to us. The inner one, he seems to have sent home to his own attention in Minneapolis. All right. But I'm an American and I've decided to settle the question with an act of violence. I'm super lost in this story. I mean, was I not paying close enough attention? (laughs) The envelope, no, there is no story. There there appears to be no explanatory note here telling me why there would be. Maybe that's what I longed for. The explanatory note. I always like an explanatory note. I would start with that. I will walk up to a historic site or national uh, national park and I will read every placard telling me that the wetlands are a complex web of life or that I'm about to take a trail back in time. Do your, uh, do your family members get frustrated with you for reading all the placards like mine do me? <laughs> That's exactly what happens, yes. Now I feel like maybe I should not have opened this because inside Uh-oh. inside this self-addressed stamped from the South Pole envelope is, is a no- white powder. Is nothing? Yeah, <laughs> I now have anthrax or possibly syphilis. 
No, it's just a blank white card. What happened? Oh, now you've screwed up the whole uh, envelope uh, stamp thing? Is this a stamp thing? Is this a numismatic Possibly. secret? Or do I need to look at this under ultraviolet light and it will explain to me why there's a painting of Elvis Presley at the South Pole? Maybe if you put uh, it in the microwave for 30 seconds. Listeners, if anybody ever sends you a copy of the Antarctic Treaty, a photo of an Elvis, uh, Velvet Elvis at the South Pole, and a mysterious envelope postmarked from the Antarctic continent, do not open it. I, maybe I've just lost most of the value of this. The, the, the Shah Jahangir would have, would have loved this, and now, mm. Mm. now he's missing out. Well... What do we send on us? We love an explanatory note. We do. Please send us uh, confusing things with or without an explanatory note to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Uh, find your fellow Futurelings on uh, Facebook or wherever the word Futurelings appears in your personal web archives. The best way to support the show, of course, to go to patreon.com slash omnibusproject the way Mike did. Mike was the uh, the washing bear level subscriber who thought that the Batavia and in particular the Gemma Constantiniana would make for an interesting show. And boy, was he right! I had never heard the uh, the terrible saga of the Batavia. I mean, I feel like I made it interesting. Reading about it, it was not as interesting. You spent weeks trying to figure out how to make the Batavia into a podcast. It should be said that um, I'm very sick, and multiple times over the last two shows, we have had to bleep out. Your syphilitic rasping and wheezing? Long, long coughing fits. But now I feel like doing this show has put me on the mend. You're energized by this tale of of, uh, 17th century sex crimes? Hmm. Nothing gets me back into a into a pattern of health. And being grateful we don't live then. Yes. Imagine. I wouldn't have lived to be 54 at that point. Not living on seabirds and sea lions. Thank you, Mike, for your support. Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if Providence allows, we wish you many goods and cheese. And and cameos. And cameos. We wish you cameos that have been around the world. Uh, And hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the office.